This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, welcome everyone to the New Books Network. So I'm Lachlan McNamee, a lecturer of politics at Monash University. And today I'm very excited to um, have on the program uh, Alvida Akibo, for, uh, who's written an amazing book, Imperial Material, National Symbols in the U.S. Colonial Empire. Now, Alvida is an assistant professor of history at Yale University and received her PhD um, in history from Northwestern University. So, Alvida, welcome. Thank you. So, um, just want to start by asking you to introduce yourself and explain why you decided to to write this book and how you came in to write about um, America's overseas empire. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me and for taking the time to read through the book and, and do this interview. I'm really excited for it. Um, so, I'm Alvida Akibo. I'm an assistant professor of history at Yale University. As you said, got my PhD at Northwestern, originally from Indianapolis. Um, so maybe I'll say a little bit about first how I came to write about U.S. empire and then how I came to this particular project. Um, my decision to write about U.S. empire came originally from a place of ignorance, um, not really about U.S. empire, but specifically about U.S. colonies. And this goes back about 15 years, but I think it's relevant for the larger conversation about mainstream ignorance about the overseas territories for a lot of people in the continental United States. Um, when I was an undergraduate uh, at Indiana University, I was a history major and I had taken so many wonderful, amazing classes um, there about U.S. imperialism. But most of those classes were focusing on uh, Latin America and the Middle East. And I didn't have the particular language about this at the time, but they were about things that we'd call informal imperialism. So all the ways the United States interferes in the affairs of other countries without formally claiming sovereignty over them. And so when I was heading into my senior year and thinking about a thesis topic, I had checked out a book from the library called The New Empire by Walter Lefebvre, which I now know is a classic in the field, but I absolutely did not know at that time. Um, and in all of these classes about U.S. imperialism, this actually ended up being the first time that I was learning about the fact that the United States had formal colonies. <laughs> And so I had come of age in the early years of the war on terror when there was this constant debate about whether or not the United States was an empire. And it just immediately struck me that the existence of formal colonies, which is such a kind of traditional, undeniable form of imperialism, it really just seemed unbelievable that that wasn't part of that debate or that it didn't actually decisively end the debate about whether or not the United States was an empire. So 
From there, I developed an interest in learning more about the U.S. colonies. I ended up writing my undergrad thesis about one of the insular cases, which was a series of Supreme Court cases about whether or which parts of the Constitution would apply to certain overseas territories. And at the time, legal scholarship was really one of the most flourishing areas of scholarship about U.S. colonies when I started grad school. And I initially thought that I would stick with that approach. Um, but as I got more into the overall literature, I realized that there were a couple of big questions that the focus on legal status wasn't really answering. Um, so the first was that, OK, the Supreme Court said that many of these places were unincorporated, the Constitution might not apply, that they were foreign in a domestic sense was the famous quote. So that's what things look like from the Supreme Court. But the lingering question was, how did colonial officials actually go about governing all of these colonies? Like, what were they actually doing there all of these years? And the second question was about what was life like in an unincorporated territory, in a place that was officially foreign in a domestic sense? Like, did it feel less like you were in the United States? And if so, how? I had these lingering questions that both kind of spoke to a desire to actually know more about what was happening in the colonies themselves in the years after 1898 and after those early Supreme Court cases. So early on in grad school, while I was working on a project about the extension of postal service to the colonies, I came across these U.S. Philippine postage stamps, and particularly one with George Washington's portrait. Um, and these were stamps that had been created through collaboration between the U.S. colonial government in the Philippines and the U.S. Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And they had the legend United States of America, Philippine Islands and George Washington. They also had other people like Benjamin Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, William McKinley. And I had always thought that one of the defining features of U.S. colonial imperialism was that the United States wanted to downplay the existence of its colonies. So it was just really surprising to see this object that made the fact of U.S. colonial rule over the Philippines so plainly obvious to anyone who might encounter it, like postal users, collectors, etc. Um, so as I got into the archives, I found that these officials had a lot to say about why they were choosing these particular portraits, not particular iconography, what they hoped these objects would accomplish in the Philippines in terms of Americanization, to use their language. Um, I soon learned that they were using some of the same portraits and designs on money, which became my first published material from the project, which was a diplomatic history article called Pocket-Sized Imperialism about the designs on money, not just in the Philippines, but other colonies as well. Um, so as I began to conceive of the larger project, I was thinking about how stamps and money are both objects that signal official sovereignty. And I had a number of other objects in mind, but flags ended up being the object that made the most sense to bring this project together. Um, so this approach of following these national symbols on material objects that represent sovereignty really allowed me to think about those questions about governance and especially about like what it feels like to actually live in a place on the borders of the national community. And I think it also offered a way for me to think about writing about the U.S. colonial empire and all these different spaces together. So the Philippines, as I already mentioned, but also Guam, Hawaii, American Samoa, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, not necessarily aiming for a comprehensive or even comparative history, but 
one that could try to chart a narrative arc of the history of U.S. colonial imperialism from about 1898 to 1960. Yeah, and so as you said, a lot of these territories like Guam or like American Samoa, I think most Americans would not even be aware that the U.S. kind of has jurisdiction over these places. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, why, why did you start the book with basically an account of American visitors to Guam and Puerto Rico who are seemingly constantly baffled by mm -hmm. the the American flag's omnipresence and the, by people's attachment to the American flag. Yeah, so I started with those two stories because I think it helps open up some of the main arguments of the book. I think the first one is the argument that the history of U.S. colonial imperialism looks different from the colonies rather than the metropole. So those two stories from the turn of the 20th century, 21st century, which is a whole century after the book begins, you have an ethnographer interviewing a man from the from Puerto Rico, and he is so confused by this man saying, I grew up with the U.S. flag, I grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and then a journalist going to Guam, and he just is so surprised that people there are, you know, belting out the Star Spangled Banner with so much enthusiasm. So starting with that really sets the stage for, okay, about a hundred years after this story begins, you still have people in the continental United States who are, as you said, baffled about the existence of the U.S. colonies and even more baffled about the flag veneration there. And then you have people in places like Puerto Rico and Guam who have been pledging their allegiance to the flag for over a century for whom this has become routine, just like it is for people in the continental United States. So I wanted to start with that of disruption. And then I think second, I wanted to open with these accounts because they're kind of at the opposite geographic ends of the U.S. colonial empire. So I hoped that it would also kind of immediately introduce the idea that putting multiple places um, with different histories, both before and during U.S. colonial rule in the same frame together can be a revealing exercise and kind of introduce readers right away to the idea that, okay, we're diving in, we're going to be trying to think about the U.S. colonial empire as a whole in this book. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that America both starts its day and ends its day in the empire, right? Um, starts its day in Guam mm -hmm. and ends its day in American Samoa. So um, it does... And that's their official <laughs> motto is yeah, Guam, right. where, where America's day begins. <laughs> Yeah, so you examine America's empire through the history of basically these kind of physical um, symbols of um, of nationalism, um, or at least nation states, uh, flags and American currency, the use of its postage stamps and all of these territories. And you're really critical of the idea that these objects are just merely ephemera, that they're window dressing, that they're significant only to collectors, right? And that's kind of goes back to what you were saying about legal scholarship being so dominant in this area. And certainly my impression too. Um, so what do we gain by examining empire building broadly, but also America's empire through these physical objects, through flags, through currency, through postage stamps, rather than say focusing on law or demography or education? Yeah, well, I think for me, one of the most interesting things about doing this project wasn't to say, oh, these objects are more important than education or law or whatever the case may be, but actually to see how these objects were always linked to these other aspects of U.S. colonial rule that scholars tend to focus on, like education, law, politics, commerce, and the military, like the soldiers are the ones who are planting the flag. The economists are the ones 
advocating for and managing currency reform and the educators are the ones who are teaching children the meaning of these symbols. Um, although imperialists are often really explicit about their understanding that schools can only reach children and that one of the benefits of these objects for them is that they can circulate more widely among the adult population and do their own kind of educating. But I do think that following these objects does do a few things for us in particular. The first is that I think it shows that US empire building was a lot more involved than we previously thought. Um, they may not have had as many boots on the ground as other empires, but as I write in the book, these US imperialists were really conscious of the power of having flags in the sky, stamps on the letters, and money in the pockets of people throughout the colonial empire. And they put an unbelievable amount of effort into making sure that all these objects with national symbols were a part of everyday life in the colonies. I think it also shows that national symbols and objects were really central, even during moments like World War II, where you would really think that there are more important things going on than worrying about what's on a postage stamp, that US officials, and in this case also Japanese officials, are still taking the time to be so attentive to those objects, um, to put out a certain kind of iconography and also police the use of these symbols. But it also helps us understand the insidiousness of these objects in everyday moments. And here I found Michael Billig's work on banal nationalism really useful of the idea that, you know, a flag hanging unnoticed on a public building or money or stamps that pass unnoticed under our noses are actually quite a powerful way of naturalizing sovereignty and national identity. Um, so one thing I wanted to do in the book was think about how that gets complicated in an imperial context where, again, people are sort of on the borders of the national community. And the last thing I'd say is that I think focusing on this, these objects helps us think differently about the longevity and the durability of U.S. colonial rule. Um, it's, aside from the early years of the 20th century, the colonies have really rarely been a primary concern for federal officials or even for most people in the continental United States. But all of this stuff is still there even to this day, right? U.S. coins, bills, and stamps continue to circulate, and the U.S. flag continues to fly over these millions of people living in U.S. colonies today of Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Guam, the Northern Marianas, and American Samoa. So for me, I think the simple presence of these objects to this day is a really powerful counter-argument against that commonly repeated idea that the age of U.S. colonialism ended. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and certainly your book gives, I think, a really refreshing kind of um, glimpse into what day-to-day -day life was like and is like in these overseas territories when so often reading about this in academic literature, it's really a lot of legal hair splitting. Um, so in that sense, I found your book really refreshing. Um, Thank you. Yeah, let's talk about flags, though, because uh, it it is obviously the 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 um, national symbol um 
that everyone thinks about most. And throughout the 20th century, you kind of show in your book the veneration of the US flag through public ceremonies were, was such a key part of public life and, and a key part of political conflict between different actors in Guam and the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Hawaii, which flag to fly, what, what type of flag, et cetera. Um, and you make the interesting point as well that at the same time period throughout the early 20th century, the former Confederate states in the mainland US, uh, unlike these overseas colonies that we think of as not really American, unlike, say, Alabama or um, Mississippi, but these former Confederate states were actually the ones that were all refusing to introduce flag flying ceremonies uh, in the same way as these overseas um, territories. So what was happening in Puerto Rico and Philippines in Guam at this time? And why do you think the US and US colonial officials were spending so much time thinking about flags, thinking about where to fly them, and, and maintaining kind of symbolic supremacy through public flag veneration? Yeah, well, I think it's the answer is even in the way that you formulated the question that maintaining symbolic supremacy through flag veneration was so important to these imperialists, both because of what was happening in the continental United States and because of what was happening in the colonies. Mm -hmm. um, and I use the term imperialists in the book because it wasn't always colonial officials that were doing this. So in the first chapter, we see that the people that were most involved in spreading the U.S. flag in the early years of colonial rule were a union veterans organization called the Grand Army of the Republic. And they had been promoting what they called patriotic education in the continental United States since the Civil War, but especially towards the end of the 19th century, they were pushing things like having U.S. flags in schools, having children reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, part of larger Americanization efforts at the time. And many people have written about how those efforts targeted Native Americans, new immigrants from Europe and Asia, and also Southerners who, as you said, still refuse to acknowledge the supremacy of the U.S. flag over the Confederate flag. So these imperialists in the Grand Army of the Republic, they write in their very detailed reports about like all the failures that they're having in the South. And they really see the new colonies as a place of opportunity with the typical colonial mindset that these places are a blank slate, although they quickly learn that there's a complicated history of flags in these places, like the formerly independent Hawaiian kingdom, formerly Spanish colonies, places like the Philippines that had already declared their independence and had their own national flag. Um, so there things get really interesting really quickly because you have the Philippine flag representing the independent Republic of the Philippines and the US flag by 1899, very clearly representing the flag of the new colonizing nation that is denying the Philippines independence in a really brutal war. So that's kind of how things work in that earlier period of establishing symbolic supremacy. Um, but by chapter three, when we're looking roughly at the 1910s to 1930s, you have these various U.S. colonial governments facing both real and imagined threats and challenges to U.S. symbolic supremacy, especially from nationalists in places like the Philippines and Puerto Rico. In the Philippines, the story is a little more complicated because it doesn't seem like in this particular instance that Philippine nationalists were actually protesting U.S. rule. But this comes after the 1907 elections where people were having parades in the streets and they were carrying both Philippine and U.S. flags together. But U.S. Americans in Manila just become absolutely enraged by the sight of the Philippine flag 
giving it, you know, I, acting as though it's equal to the U.S. flag, that the two can be carried side by side. They claimed that it was an insult because the U.S. flag was smaller and they have this mass patriotic meeting at the Manila Opera House where they demand that the colonial government ban the Philippine flag and the colonial government does it. <laughs> they ban it for the next 12 years, even though Filipino officials for that entire period keep trying to get that ban repealed, saying we never meant any insult in the first place. Um, and meanwhile, in Puerto Rico, when you have growing nationalism starting really in the 1920s and 30s, you have these very intentional protests that are challenging the supremacy of the U.S. flag, like tearing down the U.S. flag and raising the Puerto Rican flag in its place. And we see that colonial officials respond with these really harsh crackdowns um, under Winship, Governor Winship in the 1930s. Later, there's a gag law in the late 1940s that effectively criminalizes the display of the Puerto Rican flag. Um, during World War II, we can see that these symbols become the center of this kind of symbolic battle between Japan and the United States in its Pacific colonies. They ban each other's flags. Japan is like blacking out the words United States of America and postage stamps, um, but really focusing on what it was like for people in the Philippines and Guam to live through that. And I think those are just a few examples, but again, kind of speaks to the argument that these objects weren't just window dressing, they were incredibly important to people in the colonies and to the colonial officials who put a lot of effort into getting the objects there and keeping them there. Yeah, and it totally chimes with my own experience. When I was 11, I moved to, to the US um, and from Australia. And um, yeah, the, the whole Pledge of Allegiance ceremony before school, I found just so baffling and um, mm -hmm. uh, one day I decided I'm just not going to do it because I'm not American so it doesn't make sense for me to do this and it created such a controversy I had to mm -hmm. you know, go to the principal the school board had to meet eventually the kind of first amendment won out but it was the for if for an 11 year old I think it was just like encountering this history of flag veneration in a way that didn't kind of make sense to me but then it, clearly it's it's it still remains such a kind of key part of American life and so and even more so it definitely yeah, even yeah like, um, one of the things that's nice about having written this is that almost everyone can think of a personal story that relates to this as you just said of like being hauled out of the classroom because you were Australian and didn't feel you wanted to participate in the American Pledge of Allegiance but it just goes to show again and I had to learn this myself in taking on the project that I initially thought that you know, it would be more of a theoretical approach of I have to think about what people might have been thinking about these objects because they probably won't be talking about them. But in fact, people are talking about them all the time because even as your personal story just shows, people care so deeply about, you know, whether other people are reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, whether mm -hmm. they're respecting the flag, whether they're honoring the figures that they should be honoring. Mm -hmm. D definitely. Um, yeah. Okay, well, let's let's talk about um, currency because um, one of the really fascinating aspects of your book was just um, not just flags, but also how difficult it is to get people to venerate to to use the right currency, basically, after mm -hmm. especially in the period immediately after annexation uh, or during war. Um, so, describe some of the conflicts that you found when you looked at the history of um, currency usage in the Philippines and Hawaii. 
Yeah. So first I'll say that one of the most interesting things I learned while writing this book is just how late currency was standardized in the United States. Mm. It wasn't really until the Civil War that the U.S. federal government decided that they would really put a lot of effort into making sure that U.S. dollars and cents uh, were the exclusive currency. But by the end of the 19th century, you still have Mexican money, Spanish money, even shillings being used in some places throughout the continental United States. Um, so similar systems prevailed in all of these new territories. You kind of had a mixture of Mexican, Spanish, other national currencies circulating freely. But so even though it's only been a few decades since the U.S. government had standardized currency, when people from the continental United States showed up in these new occupied territories, they saw these multiple fluctuating currencies with exchange rates that local people understood, but they didn't. And they just immediately start calling for standardization and reform. And they link this to ideas about like what they think it means to be modern and civilized. Um, but this happens differently in, in different places. So in Puerto Rico, the colonial government does the exchange very quickly in 1900 in just three months. And it's an absolute disaster, as you can probably imagine. Like, how are people from rural places going to bring all their money in to exchange in time? Um, and many of them don't. It leads to inflation throughout the island, but they get it done, and officials are patting themselves on the back that U.S. dollars and cents are now the primary circulating currency in Puerto Rico. Um, in the Hawaiian kingdom, they also had multiple currencies fluctuating um, before annexation, so U.S. money, but also French, English, Spanish money. And there were also coins for the Hawaiian kingdom uh, starting in the 1880s that were actually designed and produced by the U.S. mint that had the Hawaiian king on them. And they were made to be the same like denomination, size, weight, and value as U.S. coins. The value is pegged to the U.S. dollar. But it still takes five years to officially demonetize Hawaiian currency after annexation. And here, a lot of that debate really does center on design. So you have Hawaii's delegate in the House of Representatives arguing that the coins are really special to the Hawaiian people because for them, it's like tangible evidence that they were once a people with their own kingdom. And then on the other side, you have people arguing that it's completely inappropriate, even dangerous to have coins that express the sovereignty of another nation circulating in a place that's under U.S. sovereignty. Um, they seem to learn a little bit from the Puerto Rican exchange and give a couple of years instead of three months to ease the transition. Um, by the time they purchased the Virgin Islands in 1917, they seem to have forgotten a lot of those lessons and the exchange again is a mess. But these places, the U.S. government decided that people we're going to use the exact same money as in the continent symbolically in the book where you have coins with the Hawaiian king, the Spanish king, or the Danish king being shipped to the U.S. Mint, melted down and recast into coins that have the American eagle and that legend, United States of America. Um, in the Philippines, it's a little more complicated. Um, so economic experts were worried that introducing the gold-backed U.S. dollar would harm trade with silver-backed Asian countries. So they come up with a different currency for the Philippines. They call it the U.S. Philippine Peso. 
And what this means for my story is that U.S. Philippine currency, coins, paper money, and also postage stamps can have different designs than U.S. money. So it's a unique case within the colonial empire where everyone else uses the same money and stamps people do in the continental United States. But as I mentioned earlier, they choose to use a lot of U.S. iconography anyway. So you have the American Eagle, Washington, Lincoln, Franklin, and they pair this with really carefully selected Philippine iconography, like Jose Rizal, um, images of Filipinos at work. And they talk about how you know, this money will convey the message that through hard work and under U.S. tutelage, Filipinos will someday earn self-government. But they're very aware, of course, as you said, that that message can't spread unless people are using the money. And at first, they aren't. So you have economic experts and U.S. and Filipino government officials reporting that people aren't using the U.S. new U.S. Philippine money. They're still using Mexican money, still using Spanish money, or that they're not following the official two to one exchange rate. It's interesting because the reason they're not following it is because most people don't believe that the U.S. Philippine peso is worth twice as much when it's the same size and silver content as these other coins. So you get into kind of invented ideas about the value of money. And U.S. officials sometimes see this as resistance. But one of the points I make in the book is that a lot of this is just about practicality for traders who are just going about their business and using the currency that would most likely be accepted by other buyers and sellers. So it actually takes about a decade of effort from the colonial government, like sending provincial governors up into rural areas with wheelbarrows full of coins and passing these laws that tax transactions made in the old currency for this to really be resolved for the most part, at least, and to have the U.S. Philippine peso be the, the primary currency in the islands. Yeah, and uh, and I'll add that just one of the mind-blowing points in your book for me was just that um, the U.S. during World War II printed an entirely separate currency for Hawaii uh, because it was anticipating a Japanese invasion and didn't want all these U.S. dollars to suddenly be taken by the um, Empire of Japan. And so just created mm -hmm. an entirely new currency and shipped all the real U.S. dollars back to the mainland. It's just the, the book mm -hmm. is full of kind of fascinating little tidbits that just show how much the, the past is a, is a foreign country. Um, okay, but in, um, in, in a broader sense, I just want to kind of broaden out a bit. Um, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a kind of tension, like we're, we're talking about US empire, we're talking about its overseas territories in, in American life today. Um, and the desire of certain groups that you've discussed already to um, Americanize overseas territories, to make them basically physically indistinguishable from the mainland, to have American currency, to have the American flag, to have American postage stamps. This seems to, um, to hold out the ultimate promise of equality and inclusion of, say, Puerto Rico or Guam in the American nation state. And certainly that's the response that people have when you know, we talk about American empire, there may be kind of a resistance because people don't think of America as an empire, think of it as a as a nation state that, that might eventually incorporate these territories on an equal basis. Uh, so do you think that 
there's something here? Do you think there is something fundamentally different about the U.S.'s relationship to these overseas territories and other canonical empires like the French or British empires? Or do you see these relationships as really fundamentally the same? Yeah, so I think that the inclusionary element in the idea of Americanization, if not always the practice, has often been held up as this key difference between the United States and other empires civilizing missions. And there's a lot of important differences that people point out between the U.S. empire and the British and French empires. Um, size is the main one. It's much smaller. Timing, it begins much later. People also often point to the lack of a centralized colonial office through which officials who were sent to the colonies would be inculcated with the official ideology of the empire. But the British and the French also towed this line between inviting colonial subjects into the national community and leaving them on the periphery. And that's why I think it's really important for scholars of U.S. colonies, like in addition to knowing the particular historical context of the places under study and having a really strong grounding in the history of U.S. imperialism and other contexts, whether that's settler colonialism in the continental United States or informal imperialism all over the world, that it's really important to read about other empires, especially before making any claims to exceptionalism or uniqueness. So in reading about other empires, there were some works that were really influential for me on this point. One is Sukanya Banerjee's Becoming Imperial Citizens, which is all about how people in India were making claims to citizenship and belonging in the British Empire before independence. So I think that really helped to challenge that idea that, you know, everyone knew that Britain was an empire and there was always a clear separation between a colony like India and the nation at home in Britain. Um, another one is Gary Wilder's The French Imperial Nation State. And Britain is usually the point of comparison, but I actually think that France is a more helpful comparison for scholars of U.S. imperialism because they're also dealing with the same contradictions inherent in being a Republican nation state and an overseas empire, which is, again, something that people often say is unique to the United States, being both an empire and a republic. So the French were also spreading a kind of French nationality to their colonies without conferring full citizenship rights within this idea that they called Greater France. And there were some people in the colonies that were claiming French nationality in the same way that in my own research, I found that people in the U.S. colonies, some of them were claiming U.S. national identity and a place, a sense of belonging within the U.S. national community. Um, so I think it's more interesting, and this is one of the things that Wilder points out, to think about how people grapple with those contradictions rather than to simply aim to point out contradictions. So I think there are major differences between the U.S. empire and other empires, but I think that I would lean more towards pointing out these connections in order to help challenge those ideas of U.S. imperial exceptionalism. Mm. Yeah, so on, on the note of tension, so... Um... So, so one tension I, I, I also found in the book, and maybe this is a broader tension about, about the literature um, on U.S. empire that's really flourished over the last decade, um, is the kind of um, identities of the people living under U.S. jurisdiction. So you and this book, you end the book with a real prominent act of um, symbolic resistance in Hawaii in 2009, when indigenous protesters on the 50th anniversary of Hawaiian statehood set the U.S. flag on, on fire. 
publicly declaring the desire for essentially a separate independent Hawaiian nation state, the restoration of their independence. So this coercive relationship here between the U.S. state and indigenous Hawaiians, both in the kind of 1890s, but also to the current day where um, indigenous Hawaiians favor independence but can't, can't get it due to the legacies of settler colonialism, it really does seem fundamentally imperial in that sense, the relationship of the U.S. state to indigenous Hawaiians. But you also indirectly talk about in the book, like the many people in other territories like Guam, like Puerto Rico, like American Samoa, that unlike indigenous Hawaiians are much more comfortable with having hyphenated identities, being both Samoan and American, say, or that even see themselves as fully American and want to fully integrate in, into the US. And this, of course, is kind of a defining conflict in places like Puerto Rico and Guam. So what I'm getting at is here is that whether this literature um, uses contradictory terminology, whether it's sometimes incorrect to talk about uh, the homogenous US empire today. Uh, in some places like Hawaii's um, US rule over indigenous people seems really coercive and unconsensual. But in others like American Samoa, it really doesn't seem that same way. It seems much more consensual and therefore non-imperial. Do you think that's a fair critique of this field or what, what, what's your read? Yeah, so I would definitely say that I would agree there's no homogenous U.S. empire today, but I would also emphasize that there wasn't a homogenous U.S. empire in 1898 or at any other time. I think either in terms of the nature of U.S. colonial rule or even the experience of living under U.S. colonial rule. I mean, first off, it's not even the same entities that are governing these different colonies. Some are through the War Department, others Interior, others Navy. The colonies get transferred between them. And U.S. imperialists are always using different modes of colonial rule in different places and at different times, whether that's a very coercive imperialism, like the violence of establishing U.S. rule in the Philippines, or the decision to respect local autonomy and allow indigenous institutions like courts to continue in American Samoa. Or later, towards the end of the book, we see the U.S. taking different paths and granting the Philippines independence, Hawaii statehood, turning Puerto Rico into a commonwealth. Um, but even when the book is highlighting some similar modes of colonial rule used in different places, like the flag being planted throughout the empire, for example. I always try to be attentive to the fact that this wasn't a homogenous experience. So for most people in Hawaii, the U.S. flag being raised was a day of mourning. For people in Puerto Rico, most of them felt it was a day of hopeful optimism. For many in the Philippines, it was a betrayal. Um, for people in the Virgin Islands, which is the only majority Black colony uh, under U.S. rule, it was a day of fear about whether they were going to be treated like Black Southerners under Jim Crow in the continental United States. And even that is just painting with really broad brushstrokes, because within each of those places, you've always had people who claim Americanness, people who reject it, and people who feel ambivalent or indifferent about it. So I think there's just been nothing homogenous about the nature of U.S. colonial rule or the experience of living under it since it started. But I think that what's at the root of your question is whether what you're calling consensual imperialism or what others might call imperialism by invitation, um, whether that is any less imperial than imperialism by force. And I don't know that I would find that framing as useful because I think it can 
quickly lead into conceiving of imperialism more as a condemnation of a country's actions rather than a definition. And I think for me, it's not necessarily the nature of acquisition or even the nature of colonial rule, like whether it was brutal and coercive or not, that makes a place a colony. I tend to think of that more just as a definition, as a, a particular form of territorial rule. So I would argue that you know, someone from Puerto Rico or Guam claiming they identify as American doesn't suddenly mean that Puerto Rico and Guam are no longer colonies or sites of imperialism, um, especially when, as you said, that claim is often only coming from one segment of the population. And you also have others who definitely would not identify as American. Um, and I think probably the most extreme example of this is that you had some really prominent people in the Philippines who were claiming Americanness and pushing for statehood right in the middle of that incredibly brutal Philippine-American war. And I think that that certainly doesn't make that era any less imperial. Um, I'm also always reminded to, to keep in mind the many other complicated experiences with U.S. national identity um, outside of the colonies and how many other groups have been politically and legally excluded in various ways, but also still have many members who claim they're proud to be American and that those claims don't erase the nature of their exclusion or their oppression. Um, so yeah, I think going back to what I said about Gary Wilder's writing about France, I find it more interesting to explore these tensions than to try and neatly categorize them or just simply proclaim that they're contradictory and leave it at that. Um, so I would lean more into saying, you know, it's not necessarily an impossible contradiction to have people identifying as Americans in colonies that it can and does absolutely exist in contexts that are still imperial. And I think that people often, scholars often know what to do when we come across instances of resistance. Um, but one thing I really wanted to do in the book is try to think about both resistance and all these other more complicated actions and identifications and still find a way to fit them within our understanding of an imperial context. Yeah, well, you, you certainly have succeeded at that. Um, and Thank you. I just, I just want to note as well for any uh, listeners that um, for anyone who thinks the U.S. imperialism or empire um, that is over, um, you know, uh, President Trump's um, uh, desire to purchase Finland in his last um, term was certainly made the headlines. But what it didn't make the headlines was until recently was that uh, when Denmark refused to sell um, uh, Greenland to the to to the U.S., Trump uh, proposed selling them Puerto Rico instead, so doing a swap. Mm -hmm. um, so certainly, the we can't rule out that the their um, future. Um, uh, Kind of incantations of U.S. empire um, to 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 delve into in the next administration. Um, yeah, but, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. But I I just want to um, give you opportunity to to talk about what what are you what are you working on next? Yeah. So right now I am deeply immersed in learning about the executive branch. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that one of the questions that had led me into this research initially was about like, the actual nature of U.S. colonial governance. And one of the things I found while writing this book, as many other people have before me, is that it can be really tricky to tell a cohesive story about the U.S. colonial empire 
because these different places were governed by different parts of the government, as I mentioned, the War Department, Interior, Navy, they were transferred between them. And they also had individual island governors that were appointed by the US president. So it's really complicated, but it's all in one way or another kind of under the auspices of the executive branch. And one of the other enduring myths about U.S. imperial exceptionalism is that the United States never had a colonial office, but of course it did and it still does. It's currently called the Office of Insular Affairs, but it has predecessors in the War Department and Interior Department. So right now I'm deep in kind of untangling this history of imperial administration. Um, I recently published an article in Modern American History called Empires Embezzlers about a case of fraud and political scandal in Cuba, which is a place that I didn't write about in the book, but it really highlights the jockeying between two executive entities, the War Department and the Post Office Department, um, as well as Congress and the Supreme Court over this fundamental question of like who exactly within the federal government is supposed to be in charge of managing this new empire. So my main motivation with this research right now is to get away from falling back on saying it's complicated and to actually try to better understand what's been going on in the federal government and the executive branch and its subordinate entities in particular when it came to actually governing the colonial empire. Mm, fascinating. Well, um, Alvida Akiba, it's been a real pleasure. And for everyone, just one last reminder, Imperial Material, National Symbols in the U.S. Colonial Empire is out right now from University of Chicago Press. But it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful.